I had three different offers and it was looking, you used to be really good. And then you moved to London and, and we need to know a couple of things. And the first is, have you gotten this like weird international bug out of you because it's a bug, not a feature. And if you're really good in this industry, you never leave the Bay area. If you're an A player, why would you ever put yourself in a B or C market, which is how they perceive Europe. Hello and welcome back to the Associated Podcast. While we're working away on the next season of Associated, Season 8, we have a special treat for our listeners. We were delighted by the feedback we got from our mini-series on the influx of U.S. capital into the European tech ecosystem. We've decided to release a few of the full interviews that we've done. So today, we have the pleasure of releasing the interview that we did with Hussein Kanji of Hoxton Ventures. It's a deep dive on how the perception of Europe has evolved from his perspective, how they think about brand, or lack thereof, and what staunchly differentiates them as a fund, with details in here from LP strategy, fund structure, and beyond. This episode was filmed in April of 2022, but after listening back, we believe that there's just too many good notes in here to keep to ourselves. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. It would be fantastic if you could do a little bit of an introduction on yourself, please. Yeah, so I'm uh, Hussein Kanji. I run an early stage venture capital firm in London called Hoxton Ventures. We're about eight and a half years old now. We're a seed firm that invests into European companies that we think can grow into global winners or global category leaders. And we mostly focus on brand new markets. So most of our companies end up inventing a brand new category in themselves. So something has usually changed, allows them to go do that. Uh, so the product or service wasn't available before then. We've had a good run. We're on our third fund, uh, which is about a little bit over $200 million. The last fund was $100 million, and the fund before that was $40 million. And then that first fund, which is the oldest, we made 17 investments, three of which have since gone public and are multi-billion dollar companies. And we have a fourth multi-billion dollar company, and I think probably a fifth and a sixth multi-billion dollar company. And in all these cases, we were pretty much the first check. There may have been an angel check before us, but we were the first institutional check in all of them. And people don't know us, but they tend to know our companies. So we were early in Deliveroo. We were the seed fund that did Deliveroo. We were the early investor in Dark Trace, and we were the early investor in Babylon Health, which is an ad healthcare company. Amazing. All fantastic companies. But I would love to learn, how did you get into venture capital? I moved here in 2005 to come to business school. I wanted a little bit of a break. I, I spent most of my career, I'm American. I grew up in New York uh, and then I moved to California to go to college largely to get away from my American high school classmates, my secondary school classmates. We're all very type A and very competitive. My, my school is a feeder into the Harvard, Yale, Princeton, et cetera. And so I did this very odd thing and went to Stanford before Stanford was a very well-known school, at least among the East Coast establishment. And then I thought I was going to be a journalist when I was going to grow up. And that, that was my path. And I was the editor of the paper at Stanford. Like, you know, that, that's what I did with most of my time. And my other big passion was design. So those are two big. So I took a lot of design classes and I wrote for the paper. Those were my two big interests. It was one of those two things. This summer of my first year at Stanford, I did, I worked at intern at a design agency that was in the same building as, as Wired Magazine. It was the very early days of the internet. It was 1990, uh, 1994, 1995. That's super early. And a couple of us from that company and some other folks ended up starting up another design agency to do websites. We did, you know, we did Hewlett Packard's first website and we worked on Apple's first website, a bunch of stuff. And we eventually got acquired by, by KPMG. And that kind of set me down an entrepreneurial path. My second company had nothing to do with design. It was a networking company, a, a e-pack and inspection software switch. So very networking. My third company, which was in mine, was a content delivery networking company. I joined someone else on that journey, raised a bunch of venture money. It eventually got built to Comcast and my fourth company, an angel investor in the third company and I teamed up and we privatized a piece of technology that was sitting in a national research lab. It's the machine at airport security, where when you go through airport security, there's an x-ray machine, there's another machine next to it. Uh, put your hands above your head like this. It kind of spins around you. That was our machine and we sold that to L3. And so I ended up you know, effectively being in the tech industry as, a, as an entrepreneur. I moved up to Microsoft to go see how a big company would work. And so I spent a few years, I thought I'd spend a year or two, I ended up spending four in Seattle. I really liked Seattle, but Seattle is not a city. I, I grew up in New York uh, and Seattle's more of a town. And so I really wanted to be in a big city. 
And, and I didn't want to go back to New York and I didn't want to go back to, to San Francisco, which I also didn't think was a very big city. And so I moved to London and, and then as chance happens, I ended up meeting the partnership at Actel in London, who had set up a few years prior to moving. It should have been 2000, 2001. I'd gotten there in 2005. They were thinking about building a firm for the long term and thinking about how they would do the handovers. They, they had to help out a few things and then they created a job for me while I was still in business school. So my second week of business school onwards was effectively working at Axel, started doing some project work and midway through the year became much more formalized. It took up that much time to do the contract, but by September, October, that decision was made. I then stayed at Axel for about four years. And then it's reasonably publicly known. I didn't get along very well with the person who now runs Axel. Uh, and so that was a career ending move for, for a young up and comer. I did, when I left Axel, I talked to a couple of other venture funds back then there weren't very many venture funds. So there was Index Axel, Benchmark Europe, which is now Bulletin. And then there was much of seed funds, Eden and Pond, which nobody really knows because they're well on the business. You couldn't really join a fund that was going to go out of business. There were a slow motion decline. And so there were no jobs there. I talked to Danny Reimer, who was running Index in London, and Danny broke it down pretty easily for me, which is said, look, you're in between, like you're not junior anymore, can't do all the, the I mean, you can do the grunt work, but you won't enjoy it. And you're not senior enough to know that whether you can actually pull really great deals in. And, and so there's no home. And the only home that was available for me was to go back to the Bay Area. And when I talked to a bunch of Bay Area venture funds, and I, and I definitely wanted to stay in venture at that point. I, I liked my job at Axel and I liked doing the venture thing. Most people in the Bay Area basically told me the same thing. I had three different offers and it was, look, you, you used to be really good. And then you moved to London and, and we need to know a couple of things. And the first is, have you gotten this like weird international bug out of you? Because it's a bug, not a feature. And if you're really good in this industry, you never leave the Bay Area. Remember, this is like, this was a 2010, 2011, 2012. The mentality was very different. If you're really good, if you're an A player, why would you ever put yourself in a B or C market, which is how they perceive Europe not. And so why don't you, why don't we give you an office? We'll pay you a salary and you can park and you can prove to us that you're once again, one of us in the Bay Area. And, and then we'll talk about a career path or a job that's kind of a little bit more permanent. And so two out of the three venture firms had basically that role for me. And, and I was convinced in around that same time that the conditions in Europe, which were not very good in 2005, six, seven, eight for building really big companies had fundamentally changed. And so I thought not knowing very much, uh, I thought maybe I should go raise my own fund, which is what Hoxton started off as. There were a bunch of people who had set up funds in 2005, 2006. These are the micro venture funds, the first rounds, the union squares, et cetera, that had done really well. And generally speaking, things that take off in the U.S. And until well in Europe, like five years later, that was the evolution. And, and so I didn't know what I didn't know, like most entrepreneurs and setting for your own fund. It's an entrepreneurial journey in itself. It took 39 months for us to raise our fund. And they teach you this, they teach you this thing at business school, it's not called fallacy, right? So after we'd given ourselves 24 months, thinking the fundraise would take 12 to 18 months at 24 months, that was a real hard stop for us to figure out, like, how do we keep financing this thing? Cause you're drawing upon your own savings and you know, the wealth that you've made before, but it is a fallacy, right? So it, usually people don't think about sunk cost the right way and they continue to plot on. And if you've spent two years of your life trying to do something, which your family miserably to do it, i.e. raising the fund, one thing, the rational thing to do is to walk away and then go do something else. The irrational thing, which is usually what you end up doing is to say, God damn it, I'm going to go figure out a way to go make this thing happen. And we powered through it. And like I said, it took 39 months for us to raise that fund. We started our fund before Notion started. We, we compared a lot of notes with kind of our peers who were setting up funds. The Notion's first fund came and went before we were actually even in business. It was that slow. And I think most of the people that we spoke to basically said one, one variation. So we talked to a European family or a European institutional fund uh, that was investing in venture. The history of losses in Europe and the history of venture funds that simply did not make money in Europe was so long that they said that this was never going to work. And so they weren't, there wasn't very much conviction about Europe. And then when you talk to someone who's a little bit more open-minded, you know, the question that you would usually get is, so you basically want me to pay, and this is usually a family office, you want me to pay you to gamble away my money uh, on, on startups. So that was the European context. The American context was we understand venture, we just don't think it works at all in Europe. And the best in class funds, benchmark and Excel, if common set up there, and they've had terrible returns. So what makes you think that you guys can do it any differently? 
but it's hard for most people who are not there to see that the markets were fundamentally changing. The, the platforms are becoming much more global. It was much easier to build a European company in 2012 or 11 than it was in 2006 or 7 because you had Facebook, you had Google, you had Twitter, you had the App Store. And, and those level the playing field dramatically for European companies. It's hard for people to look at exponential growth at the start of exponential growth. And the only way to do this is to do it. And the first one, as long as it took, it eventually got into business. And then we could prove to people that we weren't like terrible investors. We did pretty well. And, and then it compounded. The story kind of built upon itself. The second fund was also surprisingly hard to raise. It took about 25 months. And part of it was we don't look like a European venture fund for, for, especially for European investors and American investors are still sitting on the sidelines where we were a two person team for the longest time. When we raised the second fund, we became a three person team. So literally the entire organization headcount for Hawkins was three people. Uh, we're now five people. We don't, we look a lot more like a Silicon Valley fund than we do like a European fund, which I think Notion has 24 people working for them. Like it's, this is a crazy difference between how we work and how lean we are and how they work. And most institutional investors are like, how the heck can you do this job? And our, our returns are, you know, multiple higher than most of the other funds out there, which lean small partnerships built in the 1970s or 1980s model of venture work really well if you're good at doing it. Uh, if you're not good at doing it, you have to do a bunch of other things, but they work really well if you're really good at doing it. Even Benchmark is not a very large organization today from a people perspective, and they do exceptionally well. And they don't raise big funds and they can't stay focused on what they do. So we just have a very different philosophy on these kinds of things than other people, but it tends to put investors off in Europe because we don't look like the other things that they invest into, which is more like private equity firms. And so they're puzzled by how the heck this is sustainable and durable and will actually yield to results. And then eventually the results start stacking up and start speaking for themselves. And then people are like, I don't really understand it, but they think to make a bunch of money. So I should trim the check so they can make it into even more money. And, and that's, that kind of probably explains this, the $200 million fund we just announced a few months ago. Congratulations on that one. You mentioned so many things. One of the first things that came to mind is that it, it seems no one really believed in the big fish, small pond, eight old adage that, you know, is quite prevalent. And so they tried to to make you almost rethink your uh, geographical landscape and, and what would work best for you. But then uh, on the other side, it, it, it seems like it took a lot of, you know, perseverance for you and, you know, your, your co-founder to continue this, maybe naysayers, but also maybe some inbound data points that, that maybe other people would take. And so I, I'm really curious to hear how you all, not only from your own specific fund and funds that you've raised, but also just looking at the broader landscape. I've really seen this kind of European landscape continue to evolve. And we can even look at it from how it's changed for you to to, to raise and get some of those LPs on board that initially were like, uh, no, we don't really want to touch Europe. The, the market has changed dramatically. In the UK, there's a government or quasi-governmental organization called Tech Nation, which kind of tracks the UK economy and specifically the tech industry. And every year they produce a, a report to show what's going on in the UK. And it, it's exponential growth in terms of the overall market cap of the portfolio of the tech industry or the entire tech industry added up. And it's exponential growth on the number of unicorns, which is the, the glamour stat that everyone tries that, that uses, right? To measure the health of the tech economy. And, and that's the same thing that's happened in France, the same thing that's happened in Germany. So the numbers are dramatically different than they used to be. We never predicted there were going to be this vibrant. We also didn't expect we we're going to be in such a loose kind of, you know, monetary policy world where there was so much capital going in, which would inflate a lot of this stuff up. It's a good, it's good to be a venture person riding that up as long as you're exiting and you're the top before, before these things kind of change. But I think all of this kind of stimulus that went into the markets ended up finding its way to the tech economy. And then the fundamentals just got that much better. The nature of virtuous cycles is they are virtuous. So when you have a bunch of founders who then go off and build something and they, even if they don't do it to the same scale as you might want them to do, but they do a good job and then they come back again and do it again. And the employees come back and go up and build companies. It's, it's what happened in, in California. It's what happened in Israel. You know, it, it, it's what happened in China and the same exact phenomenon is taking place in, in Europe. And so the market is only strengthening on the fundamentals basis. 
And, and the fact that there's a ton of now capital being attracted uh, to this, people are waking up to the opportunity. I would still say most of the U.S. endowments are probably still sitting on the sidelines when it comes to the European market. Because I think if you're a big established endowment, the way you think about the world is what's the minimum amount of checks that I can write to get perfect market coverage. I, I don't need to be in every single fund in Europe if all the good stuff ends up in Sequoia and Axel and Index's portfolio. If I just write those three checks to index Axel Sequoia, I get perfect market coverage of 80% of the market or something like that. And so I don't need a fourth fund or a fifth fund or a sixth fund. I get the fourth fund and fifth fund that the sixth fund might end up investing earlier than Sequoia. But, you know, if Sequoia ends up owning 20% of the business, I benefit as an endowment from having a share in that business, even if the price point might be a little bit different. So it is still hard to get the established endowments, which are, they are in the index axel Sequoias of the world, to commit to a brand new fund. Unless you're doing something that's very orthogonal to what those funds are doing, and, and there's no way for them to cover that industry. So if you end up with a portfolio, that never sits inside of those portfolio, inside of the index Excel Sequoia portfolio, then it makes a lot of sense to actually have you as an extra ticket, especially if those companies go on to be the good and the great of, of, of tomorrow. We're still in that conversation with a lot of international or you know, U.S. endowment style investors. And then I think the other thing is a bunch of the U.S. endowments, maybe not a bunch, but quite a few have ended up investing in other funds and they've been probably a little bit disappointed. And even though the market is really good, I think the challenge is when you pick the horse and the horse doesn't run nearly as fast or doesn't win the race, it's hard to go back to the drawing board and say, we picked the wrong one. We should have picked this one instead. And so a bunch of them have done a few speculative investments in Europe and they, they haven't picked the best in class funds. And then most of the endowments, fortunately, are only now discovering Europe, right? Now that the, the chatter is there, that there's real coverage to what's going on, more and more of them are flying over and, and spending time. So my guess is more of those U.S. endowments are going to end up dedicating capital to European funds. But I do worry that most of it's going to go to the big dominant firms in, in, in the industry here because you know, the big dominant firms end up, they end up in the cap tables of most of the interesting companies that, that kind of Europe produces. And that's always the challenge, I think, as a smaller fund. Or whether whether you can attract capital or not. And, and just as a follow-up to all the things that you talked about, and thank you for also placing us in the larger geopolitical kind of landscape of how you're thinking about things. Has anything surprised you? Maybe even in, we can talk time-gated in the last like three years, maybe that you haven't really been able to foresee. I've been surprised by how much money has come into this industry. So I, I used to keep a spreadsheet. It was a community-oriented spreadsheet. So it was, it was pre-Airtable, it was Google spreadsheet where I used to keep track of the seed firms that were starting after us. And we got to about 125 line items in that spreadsheet. And I gave up, like there were a hundred, like when we first raised, it was a struggle, you No, know, probably less than 10 funds that kind of got set up, maybe really closer to five than even to the, there were all, a, a few years after us, there were like a hundred and these days, the number must be like 300 or something like that. There's so many people who've set up funds. Many of them first time fund managers, you know, that there's, there's a ton of capital going into the industry. I've been surprised. I did not expect there to be that much money going into the European tech opportunity. The other thing that I've been surprised by is I didn't, I didn't realize how aggressive the American funds were going to come over. Already on the ground today, you have Sequoia and Bessemer and Lightspeed and General Catalyst. NEA now has someone on the ground. Sutter Hill is, I think, setting up here. And there's a lot more people kind of coming over. And then the biggest surprise for me is when I look at Europe and I look at the amount of like venture folks who are in Europe who are really well-trained, who can play and compete at that level, because all of these folks need at least one partner to, to set up the operation. So unless they're transplanting someone from the U.S., who then probably doesn't have all the European relationships from day one, you really need someone who's ideally a perfect mix of someone who's been in the U.S. for a number of years or worked with them for a number of years, and then has a bunch of European relationships. They're they're not that many folks. If you look at, again, you look at index and Excel as like the two gold standards for the industry, they're pretty small partnerships. And even their principal group or their associate pool underneath is a pretty finite list of people. It's, it's not a very big list. So there's all these Americans. I don't know how they're going to end up staffing up to the level that you really need to staff up if you want to become a really successful firm. I, I don't think any of this is going away. I think these American funds are here to stay. I think historically, if you looked at all of the Series Bs that were being done in Europe, and you took away the 
a bad series Bs, and this is really easy to do in hindsight because you can see which companies go on to be really good. If you take away bottom quartiles and you only look at the top quartile of the series B based on the ones that actually go on to become real, like real size company, 75% or so of those were funded by American firms. So the American firms have been in Europe for a long time and they've been sure picking all the good stuff. So, so that's not surprising. The only surprising thing is so many of them are now opening up a presence here. And, and then I don't know how the heck they're going to staff these things so they can compete at the level that they need to. It's much harder, I think, to build an Axel or an index in London or in Europe than it was 10, 15 years ago. Because I, I just don't think you have the density of, of, of well-trained people if, if you want to build an organization that can get the ground running day one. That's a good point. And it's something that we've discussed with a number of people when we're reporting is just, you know, uh, a, a lot of us, I think Danielle and I included, have a, a lot of busy people in our inboxes recently because of the influx of not only U.S. funds, but others as well coming in and, and wanting someone who has a network there. But then if you go higher up the partner levels as the dynamics with VC works, they're not willing to move. I'm sure you've probably had multiple conversations with U.S. funds. None. Sure. So not, a single, not a single person. I've been really surprised by this. I must be really toxic, but you know, <laughs> single person, like not even one call. I, I was told one of the U.S. funds considered me for about 30 seconds and said, he's too difficult to work with and took me off the list, like almost immediately. That in and of itself is an interesting thing. Perhaps um, they want a malleable partner. And then that in and of itself will be even more challenging to find in Europe, I think. But I'm curious to know your perception of, okay, they've done it really well and they've hit the ground running and what would what does that look like in your eyes from what you've seen it's probably too early to tell to be quite mm. honest and i think out of all of the u.s funds the one that's probably made the biggest splash here and it's probably mm. the one that's probably most equipped to succeed and it's not surprising it's probably sequoia right so they've done a full court press on europe the partners in the u and they've hired really well in, in europe one man to come across luciana came from Axel, she's really good and then a bunch of folks from the U.S. who are not in Europe fly over all the time. So Roloff is here, Alfred is here. A bunch of people come across the pond. They did their AGM or their LP event a few weeks ago in London, and they, they held it in London. They're very serious about this intersection of Europe and the U.S. being kind of one one common market where you're trying to find the best company that will end up dominating both markets from either location. So they're very serious about it. They, they feel much more serious, and they're investing a lot more heavily into Europe than many of the other peer funds to, to Sequoia, right? The Vetnamers or the Lightspeed, the General Cows, who also are here, but are much more muted compared to the Sequoia. The Sequoia presence is built. Now, some of this backfires the the Sebastian Malaby article in the FT that came out on Sequoia effectively discovering Europe was, I think, I think that was, that kind of fired, right? Because it, it, it was written by them, but it was obviously so much about them that it felt like product like pay placement, like product placement. It felt a little bit too paid. They do a lot of courtship with the seed funds. They're very clear that they're here to stay. They probably are here a couple of years too late and they would be the first to say that. They probably should have set up a few years prior because they're catching the market post-inflection. Inflection probably happened a long time ago, but they're so far behind inflection, they actually do have to play catch up. Um, and you, people forget that index 20 years ago was like effectively a family business that was just really scrappy. Like when I was at Axel, index was on Clifford street, like in the Brown Brunswick basement. It was two people in London because the firm was really headquartered in Geneva. They were the scrappy underdogs. And if you look at what index has done from 2006, seven to today, it is clearly the dominant venture fund in, in Europe. It, I, would, I, would, I would rate it higher than, than Axel, and it, it, it's been here longer than Sequoia. So I would rate it higher than Sequoia, at least here. And to be fair, they've actually gone to the U.S. and done something that's very difficult for a venture fund to do from here and actually you know become a top-tier fund out in the U.S. market. And so when you look at that, you wouldn't have guessed in 2006 to 2007 that was going to be the dominant for in Europe. Like that, that was, they were the underdogs. That was the, the ones you probably would not bet on. They would have the bond odds. And so I'm not so sure that it may be the American fund with all the resources that ends up becoming the dominant fund in Europe. It might be a scrappy underdog. It's all a matter of who ends up finding really interesting companies and then building a virtuous, a, a good halo around themselves as the fund of record. 
it's still quite exciting that we're still so early in the space and we get to have a little bit of a front row seat. And I'd, I'd love to get your perspective as a U.S. fund, but having been here for almost a decade now running Hoxton, but obviously living in, in Europe for, for way longer than that. How do you think American funds, U.S. funds are being perceived? And I'd love to maybe even get your take on how you believe the pros and cons of them supporting founders in the European ecosystem. You already touched on the fact that they've you know, been backing the leader stage rounds for years now and so already been having a curated approach to who they work with. There's pros and cons to, to those types of engagements. So would love to, to get your thoughts on how you think U.S. funds are being perceived. So we're very biased in, in, in terms of our fund. Our view is most of the interesting companies in Europe. And it's weird today. I think you can build multi-billion dollar companies just focused on the European market. But I think if you're trying to build a $50 billion company or a $100 billion company, I think it's very challenging to be able to do that and be a French company or a German company or a UK company. Now, I think you have to be a global company. And global really means either winning the U.S., or winning China. And you, you can't win China, I think, as a foreigner. I think it's almost impossible. Like the, the game is too rigged against them there. It, it, it's not a level playing field. But I think you have to win the U.S. market. And I think if you're trying to win the U.S. market, you want capital that understands the U.S. market. And ideally, you want capital that can actually help you hire. And I think the unspoken thing is in Europe, we have really good founders. We have really good engineering teams. We do not have very good go-to-market talent. We do not have very good product management talent. We still do not have very good executive talent. The, the bar is just too low in Europe. The know-how of how to build these companies, China has it, but and America has it, but the rest of the world doesn't have it. They're just not enough $500 billion, $100 billion, $50 billion companies in our home market for people to have been in, for people to have been able to see the movie a bit educated enough to be able to actually grow these kinds of companies. So the, the, the depth of talent here is still shallow on, on, on those kinds of things. And it, it's largely on go-to-market. It's much more pronounced on enterprise software than it is on consumer internet. Because again, in consumer internet, you can build a domestic company and actually get to scale. But again, if you're trying to build the next TikTok or the next ByteDance, the next Google or the next Facebook, we don't have the depth of talent here. And so you really want to then figure out how to get to the US as, as quickly as possible. And the best description I've heard of American investors came from one of my founders. He said, when I talked to, when I did the rounds of the European investors, and I was trying to raise the, the 20, 30, 40 million that he was trying to raise. So most of the European investors would ask me all kinds of questions about the unit economics, the microeconomics of my business. And they were very worried from a downside perspective. They obviously were not aiming for the downside, but they were, they were calibrated on minimizing the downside. The American investors, by comparison, was it was like you're driving a fast car and the American investor took a brick and put it on the accelerator and said, drive even faster beyond your own control and don't crash the car. And, and if you're talking about building scalable businesses, the one thing that I've learned is businesses that are, that get to like really big outcomes are not efficient. They are fundamentally broken in almost every single way, except for the one way that drives their growth that then the growth allow you to go back in and actually go back and patch the mistakes that you've made. These are never perfect companies. So thinking about downside and thinking about the, the base case is I think unconstructed when you're thinking about building hyperscale businesses. Now, to be fair, these hyperscale businesses, you don't think about the downside, you can end up with the WeWorks of the world or you can end up with the Theranoses of the world. But I do think there's a skill set in knowing where to put the parameters and make sure you're not crashing the car but you really are trying to grow the company as fast as possible, probably, you know, losing control along the way. It feels really reckless when you're doing these things, but that's how you build these big scalable businesses. I think the only people who were good at doing this stuff and knowing where the sensitivity is, because it's not, this is not a science, it's very much of an art and it's very much guided by people who've had these kinds of experiences before. And even people who've had these experiences before. And it's, it's not surprising that like Benchmark was the investor in Uber and at WeWork. And so two companies that either skated very close to the rails and, and in the case of Uber, maybe hit the rails a few times, but eventually got to a good outcome in WeWork, which is, which basically was a bit of a car crash, right? So even people who are really good at this job struggle with exactly when to put up the guardrails, when not to put up the guardrails and how to keep the car from crashing. But I think if you've never had this experience before, it is really difficult. Like it is extremely challenging to then figure out how to build these kinds of hyperscale businesses. 
And I think for that reason alone, most of our companies end up going and talking to American investors versus European investors. Now, the only caveat I would say is it's very easy to talk in generalities about like regions, and it's very easy to talk in generalities even about partnerships. It boils down at the end of the day to the person who's going to be on the board. So it's not even the firm, it's the person. And, but I think that skill set is more in abundance in the U.S. simply because there's been more outcomes like that and there's more depth around the table and there's more resources that they can tap into in the industry to give companies an unfair advantage. And, and like I said at the very beginning, we are very biased. Like we have a U.S. first type of approach. So I would say 95% of companies that kind of come and talk to us, we're not a fit for because our view is if you're starting at any one of the European geographies, there is very little reason to think about expansion into the next European geography. Because if you're playing this game to win, you're not playing this game to not lose, but if you're playing the game to win, your next geography should be the U.S. It's really easy to see, by the way, if you think about like a, co a country like Sweden, you're never going to build a multi-billion dollar company in Sweden. It's just too hard because the country's too small. If you then prioritize your expansion market as the U.K. or as Germany as the next market after Sweden, you're playing not to lose. It's less risky to go there. It's easier for you to be able to control it. You're geographically closer, but if you're playing to win, you should almost always prioritize the U.S. over the U.K. and Germany. There's very little scenarios where you would be a better business by winning Germany first and then going off and tackling the news. You're delaying the inevitable. So our view is you start in Sweden, you go to the U.S., you come back to win Germany, even though Germany is a lot physically closer to Sweden. Because you're going to try and aim to, you're, you're trying to aim to win and win in a big way and maybe try and do both at the same time. And so I would say 90% of founders probably would disagree with me on this. And that's fine, 95%, but the 5% that care, I think, end up targeting the U.S. funds to, to think about that kind of expansion. And then if you want people who have shortcuts and can help you along the way, if you're really thinking about index, Axel, Sequoia, Bethlehem, or General Catalyst, being hopefully hot as well. We win plenty of deals against those firms in terms of being able to do that because we're a pure seed shop, right? So every check for us helps, helps a lot. And there are very few times where I would say it makes a lot more sense to prioritize the European venture fund over the American venture fund. That makes sense. And we'd love to get your take on, as you talked about, there's only a certain percentage of founders that even make sense for, for kind of the vision that Hobson has and the types of founders that you all back at, at that specific stage. But there's also probably a whole bunch of founders that would love to get to that place of, of kind of having this kind of big picture approach, but maybe they don't necessarily know the building blocks or the steps to take in order to or even to think in that way. It's a little bit of a mindset switch from pitching this type of investor to pitching this new type of investor. And at least for us, uh, we always talk about how the founder is always the first kind of salesperson. And so they not only have to pitch investors, they also you know, need to pitch to, to hire people. We'd love to hear your thoughts on, on how maybe some of, of these founders are, are kind of navigating the world to build these big businesses too. I think unless you've actually spent time in Silicon Valley, when people try and explain these things, and, and we're in a post-pandemic or we're po like maybe not completely post, but a good chunk of the pandemic hopefully is behind us. And the world's gotten, the world changed a lot during pandemic because we couldn't leave. And so you had to more work from home or from your own location. And so the world is just much more distributed. But if you think about where the cluster of really interesting people are, even if people have scattered a little bit, it, it is still the Bay Area. And, and until you've actually spent some formative amount of time in the Bay Area, and for a founder, that just might be in like a month or two. When I, when someone says this to you, you don't really get it. it. It doesn't really make that much sense. It's just a place like, why could that possibly, like, why should I possibly be there? People are scattering from there and going to Austin and Miami, et cetera. That's not that interesting. And you get there and you realize, Everyone is wired up to think about scale kind of the same way. There's a, a huge amount of density of talent and there's a huge amount of density of capital. There's a reason why the virtuous cycle in, in California works the way it does. And until you've actually gone there, so we encourage a lot of our founders to go spend informative amounts of time there. It doesn't really make that much sense as to why we're so skewed towards the U.S. And, and there are lots of European partners that we know with venture funds that also still don't get it. If they go to California, they go there maybe once or twice a year for one week at a time, if, if, if even that. It's hard to understand the mentality of why Silicon Valley is actually specialist, actually spent some amount of time, like real time out there in the Bay Area. And, and the cadence is just that much faster. And there's a reason why it has substance in our mind. In terms of like how to then bridge that gap, I would say most of the founders that we invest into, like probably over 50 to somewhere between 50 to 75% are first-time founders. 
they haven't ever built a real business before. They're sometimes they're very young and they're in their twenties and sometimes they're more experienced, but it's the first time they're actually building tech business of some kind. And we spend a lot of time behind the scenes talking to them and getting them to, it's hard to tell someone what to do. It's much easier to point them in the right direction, have them learn for themselves and then have them iterate and usually build on what you might've already tried to coach them towards. So we spend quite a bit of time kind of explaining these things and trying to get them out. We open up our Rolodex all the time to people and connect them to people in California so they can see what's going on. I, I do think, by the way, you do not have to exclusively build a business anymore in California. Like, I think there was a time 10 years ago, if you asked me, I would say founders in, in Europe should actually physically relocate and move to the very, I think these days, that is more of a mindset and you can tap into the mindset. You just have to be prepared to go back and forth every once in a while. I think all the relationships over there. So I think you can build these things from here versus exclusively there. Although I, th I still think if you're an enterprise software company, you should probably relocate and, and build your go to market and your commercial function in, in the US. I, I don't think it makes very much sense to do that in Europe. Like we had a board meeting less than a month ago for one of my companies did more in revenue in quarter one than they did all of 2021 combined, right? which is a good thing. The company is going through scale and we have, and they're thinking about a fundraise. They don't need any money. They have plenty of money in the bank. And they're thinking about the fundraise and they were thinking about the future. And I was like, look, I don't think you guys should actually go out and do a fundraise right now because I'm looking at your next, I'm looking at quarter two, quarter three, quarter four. And I know what your attrition rate is on your sales team. This is a, a more of an enterprise software type business. And I know how many of your salespeople now, because we have some data, luck out, right? They don't make their numbers, which means that if you want to deliver the kind of hyperscale growth that you're talking about, you should be onboarding this many salespeople in any one month, knowing that a bunch of them are going to drop out in order for you to keep your growth rate. Otherwise, what ends up happening is your salespeople get peak productivity, and then you have a certain amount of them, and you can forecast what your revenues are, and it's flat. And if you're that founder, you have to grow your sales team basically a hundred percent every other month to keep up with the growth. How can you possibly do that without building that as a core muscle in, in the company and go out for a fundraise at the same time, right? There are only so many problems that you can tackle as a first time founder and a first time CEO, or even if you're like a serial founder or a serial CEO, you can only do so many things at the same time. If you have tons of money in the bank, go figure out how to build that muscle. Because if you can go figure out how to grow your sales team, literally like a hundred percent like every other month and that, and it continues to work that way. Your business will grow exponentially as those people get more productive, even if there's attrition in, in, in the ranks. And then you can go off and fundraise and you have a business that's 10 to 20 times more valuable in my mind with that. than if you go fundraise right now, where you're probably then not going to invest into the sales team organization the same way, and you're going to fall apart. This is what I mean by putting the brick on the accelerator, that, that, that particular piece of feedback was the brick. And I find that you get more of that kind of suggestion from people who've been around the block before that people are just looking at the numbers to me are like, they're the output, right? Like they're not the input of what actually builds the business. The question is, how do you understand the machine and how do you build the best machine possible in order to build a scalable business? And there, there's just not as much experience in the building of the machine. There's a lot of experience in understanding the output of the machine in Europe, but the actual building of the machine is still a bit of a dark art in, in Europe. And, and we're very passive investors. Like we don't want to run these businesses with no control. We're just trying to nudge them to open up the eyes about, Hey, like this might actually make you like 10 times more valuable if you're like these founder whisperers, right? And that relationship is very symbiotic if it works well. It, it, it breaks often, sadly, because one person tries to control too much or one person doesn't listen. But when it's symbiotic that way, you actually build a much higher velocity business. And that, that's what I mean when I say 1970 style venture, like it's weird. Like my, my dream is not to build the venture fund of 2021, right? Like a tiger or an Andreessen and like staff it up with a bunch of people and have like platform services and down services. My goal is to do like what people did exceptionally well in 1970s and just do that exceptionally well in 2022. I love the term founder whisperer. I think they're, they're rare and mystical. You spoke a lot about mindset there, which I think is maybe the, the key theme throughout this mini series. And you mentioned that you've got this bullish attitude from America and you've proven with your success with Hoxton and, and other US funds, that mindset actually can do very well in Europe, if you find the right founders willing to adopt that mentality. But then you have 
these additional nuances of different languages, different cultures, at different countries that that adds another spice that you might not necessarily get in the US because I think collectively land of the free, everyone has that mentality. Have you felt like you integrating as Hoxton into that landscape? Has it been a challenge? Do you think it's going to be a challenge moving forward? Have you had to adjust your style accordingly? Yeah, great to get your thoughts on that. I'm not so sure it matters. I, I think we're, we live in a much more globalized world. You know, there was a time I remember my mom grew up in an English boarding school in East Africa and, and, and she used to come to England and I used to come to England when we were kids as well. And you know, there was a time when you walked down the streets in England and everyone was dressed sort of the same. They were in gray. They were all wearing dress shoes. Like you, you were always like very proper when you went outside. And if you go around London today and you look on the streets, you'll see lots of people at sneakers, trainers in, in the UK is what they call them. And a lot of people wearing at leisure wear. We live in a very, which is no different than what you'd see if you walked around the streets in New York, or if you walked around the streets in San Francisco, and arguably probably if you walked around the streets in Tokyo. Like we live in a much more globalized, homogenized world. I, I don't think these national differences make nearly as much of a difference in, in business context or even in cultural context. So I think so we have a portfolio company that we funded during the pandemic. It's a Polish entrepreneur with a co-founder is an American entrepreneur. They were living in Spain and in Italy, and then they had a distributed team across Europe. And now they've built up their first, it's a biotech company. They're building their first clinical lab in Switzerland, but on the Italian speaking side of Switzerland. And they just raised a big financing round from two American funds. What would you call this? Is it, it, it very, it's very pan-national, right? Like it's a hodgepodge. It's a complete mix in, in, in my mind. And, and they're very proud to be from where, like where they are. They would never underplay those things. And they're proud to be Polish and proud to be uh, you kind of in Italy. It's a global team. And you know, this company could just be as limited in Boston as it could be in Switzerland. So they're trying to build the next $10 billion business and they're driven to do this. The Lake Franca inside the company is English. And that's probably true in most of these businesses. But the few places that probably are the exception are maybe France. But even in France, like when you go to Fritato, Fritato's like official language is English, even though there's a lot of French spoken in the whole. Because if you're going to try and build a big global company and target the U.S. market, you're probably going to have an English, like the common denominator in, in the business world. I think it is largely this very globalized Silicon Valley inspired thing. We all read the same information. We all watch the same TV shows. We all consume the same way. The world is just that much more flat. And in our business, where borders really don't matter. If you're building a manufacturing business and you have to deal with customs unions and tariffs and things like that, and borders do matter. But in our business, we're building software for the most part, like as long as it's a good product. That's why the app store is like the app engine of the world or the Android play like and is the same is the same thing on the Android side. It's just it's a it's a very global porous world. And so I don't think nationality has really made that much of a difference. Now again, my little five percent of the market probably agrees with me, and that ninety-five percent of the market may disagree with me. But I think my five percent is the more likely base that's gonna build the ten billion dollar, fifty billion dollar companies of tomorrow. Very interesting. I'm excited to see how some of these conversations continue to, to take place. And then this podcast will just be the start of it. I, I wanted to ask you to speak a little bit to some of the, the structural advantages that maybe you may see as some of these new companies and, and new firms come into the European landscape. But even for you all at Hoxton, when you stood up your the, the first fund, and then maybe even now onto your third one, how have you all positioned yourself this can be even down to, to, to the fund structure itself to have some sort of hopefully an advantage or, or maybe to, to be more more approachable or more appeasing to, to the founder landscape. So we're, again, probably a little bit different than other folks is I don't think the branding in terms of the explicit branding that you try and do as a venture firm makes that much of a difference. Like you can build a Nexus website, you can say whatever words you want to put on the website. At the end of the day, I think the branding of the venture firm is set by the companies that you invest into. The more great companies you invest into, the, the better the brand. To the fact that Benchmark doesn't even have a website is a testament to that. We didn't have a website for the first couple of years, and we still got into really interesting companies. Nobody knew who the heck we were. Now, again, we were playing in a market that was very nascent. There was no one else is willing to write the check, and you're the only one willing to write the check. 
it's much easier to actually be a decent investor, right? Because there's very little competition. There's a lot more competition today. So you probably do have to set yourself apart, but I think you set yourself apart largely by what you're investing into, not by what you're saying. Your actions speak much more louder than words. And when you invest and how you behave around the table with those investments, I think that's a lot. And then our view is a lot of the platform type services emanate from Andreessen and specifically Andreessen. And if you think about what Andreessen did, Andreessen came into the market when there was, there were already a bunch of top tier venture funds uh, in, in the market that it, they were well-established and Andreessen needed to go figure out how to become one of the players around that table at the upstart venture fund. And their view was in order for us to do that, we'll do two things. The first is we'll set up all these platform services. So that will be our differentiation from everybody else. We will give stuff away for free and, and that stuff will be useful to, to founders that will attract founders to us. And everyone forgets the second one. We will also overpay for the deal. So not only will we provide the services, we will actually go dump everyone else, we'll trump everyone else with higher sticker prices. And that way, in a very short amount of time, we'll be considered one of the big boys around the table. And because this is a business that is a virtuous cycle type business, if you're then perceived as one of the big boys around the table, the good deal then starts coming to you. And it, the cycle becomes pre purchased as a venture fund. And so those are the two things. Weirdly enough, this translated really poorly to the rest of the industry, which forgot the second and then only did the first and forgot that the first was not, it was only designed like this. The reason to do this was to be able to attract the best deal flow. Now, obviously if one person is doing it and then overpaying and gets themselves to be one of the perceived as one of the top five firms, if this the system becomes, it pays off for them. When everyone else starts doing it, it becomes a commodity. It's no longer a differentiation. Everyone having platform services means like no one has platform services because it comes from free. You know, the only weird folks are people like us who are like, have no platform services at all because we don't think it really makes that much of a difference at the stage in terms of picking great companies or not. It probably does make a difference at the series B stage because I would imagine if you don't have it in everyone else, that's it, not the habit. And everyone kind of forgot rule number two, which is you have to overpay for stuff. Overpaying for stuff is exactly, by the way, how Index succeeded in the U.S. They went to the U.S., there was the upstart fund, and they went in and they massively overpaid for a bunch of really interesting companies to be able to get into them. And it goes back to the point that I was making, the companies define you as a brand. If you end up investing into companies, nobody remembers what you actually paid for them. Nobody actually remembers what the actual cash on cash returns were. They remember that you were an investor in X. Like in, in Index's case, their big signature one is Dropbox when they went to the US. So people remember that you were the investor in Dropbox. They probably don't even remember sometimes the stage that you were investing into. People used to affiliate Index with, as the big investor in MySQL, which is like one of the home runs back then in the era of, of Skype. Like you'd think about Skype and that would be the obvious logo. And then you'd struggle to figure out the other logos that would convince people that Europe actually had a real tech economy. And MySQL is one of those other logos. No, nah, it was Balderton or Benchmark Europe that actually wrote the first check in, into MySQL. But it was Index that wrote the last check into MySQL and then marketed the heck out of it. And so everyone in the world thinks that Index did MySQL. And, and when people affiliate you with success, they come, in, they come back to you and they want you to write the next check. So they come and seek you out. And, and that cycle works really well. So I would say a lot of the branding and differentiation is somewhat of a futile exercise if you're not going to end up doing with great deals. And then you could be like us and say, you know what, we don't actually care so much about the branding. And, and it's probably unfair. One of our third partners, like I don't care at all. Charles cares a lot. They kind of counterbalance with me a little bit. My thing is just do really interesting companies. And I don't think you need very much more than that. This is, by the way, I'm very much of a reverse inquiry business. This is the kind of thing where if someone is going to build an interesting business, you want to be the first phone call that they make or the first WhatsApp that they send telling you about the business. And building that reverse inquiry business largely is built on your career of what else you've done. And, and, and that's what you're solving for. And I'm not so sure today, if you're going to start with a clean sheet of paper, if you want to build the best business, like best bit venture business in the world, and be the best reverse and be at the top of that reverse inquiry stack for people where they're building another, yet another platform team is going to make you stack rank higher in the reverse inquiry side. Like it, it feels like table stakes at this point. And it's a real challenge. I think if you're a newer fund in Europe, that that up is how do you differentiate yourself? Cause the, the challenge with deals is they take five, eight, 10 years to kind of manifest. 
you know, one way you could do this is you could get into all the hot companies, but the challenge with a lot of the hot companies, whether it's the scooters or the bicycles or now the rapid groceries, is everyone does them. And so you don't end up differentiating yourself. And if you do the contrarian deals, which is probably what gets you the most, like it gets you the most kudos for four or five years while they're contrarian until they actually turn out to be really big. And they're like, wow, that guy was really smart. Or that woman was really smart for writing that first check into that contrarian thing. But contrarian things by default take a very long time to kind of manifest and, and play out. So they don't actually help you all that much with, with your brand in the short term. One of the kind of final questions you wanted to, to ask you was, did you find that structurally being based in London, it, it was best for you all to have any particular legal structure, even fun for your fund that maybe made it more attractive to LPs from certain geographies or even at the end stages made it maybe easier for you to attract certain founders because they were more excited about certain uh, partnership structures or, or what have you. Yeah, so I think funds, fund structure is not really a big differentiator for most funds. There are a few funds, and there were back then, and there probably still are today, that were designed as corporate entities versus GPLP partnerships which don't really make all of them a sense for tax and then they fall apart after a while. Once the companies actually start, once the funds start scaling, it becomes really hard to then deal with. Now, GPLP stuff is a pass through. I, again, I, I think history teaches you when there's like 40, 50 years of the same structure being used, it doesn't really make sense. They innovate. This is structure, innovation. There's lots of good reasons for innovation. There's also really bad reasons for innovation just to be different. Doesn't make sense. We were a Cayman fund. And, and to this day, I would much rather be, we're no longer a Cayman fund, sadly, because we have too many European institutional investors who don't like Cayman as a vehicle. Cayman is largely the international offshoot for American funds. So most American funds are Delaware funds. And then the ones that want to be a little bit more international, usually Cayman funds, Tigers at Cayman fund, for instance, for instance, but most European funds tend to be Luxembourg or Luxembourg, big one, BVI, Jersey, et cetera, all their Jersey or they've all kind of gone away to some degree because of big tax and, and, and just people, the, the EU funds are more, much more skeptical, these kind of channel island type structures. Luxembourg is a pain in the ass. It doesn't really follow Anglo-Saxon law. Um, it's really expensive. It's a small place. All the providers are really expensive. Like it's just, it, it's a tax on top of a tax. And, and then it, and then on top of that, it's a very brittle structure. So it's just really hard to do stuff. Sometimes we have to set up SPVs because again, our first few funds were small. And so if you need to set up an SPV and you have to do that, get the structure set up and get the wire done in a week, good luck trying to do that in Luxembourg. It's just like the friction that you have in Luxembourg is just really high, really easy to do that in Delaware and in Cayman. If we didn't do Delaware, we did Cayman because we were a UK fund. Now we're now a UK domicile fund, which, you know, is reasonably straightforward. The one downside of the UK domicile fund is you can go to, you can go to companies house and you can look up someone's entire LP list, including ours. Like you could just go to companies house, type in our, type in Hawkins Ventures or type in Felix or type in Notion and click a little bit. It doesn't take very much to see all the investors that are in. You won't know the sizes of the investors, but you'll know all the names. It, it's great if you're fundraising because you can see who's actively investing in the UK button, but it's, it, it, that I think is a bug, not a feature. Like, that's not a very good thing to, to have that like, level of exposure. But yeah, from a fund structure, we're just a standard fund. And then that, that genesis of all of this is the way it, usually these things work is I called down our external counsel, our fund counsel at Axel when I was setting the Fox in and, and those good fund councils will typically work on, on, not on retainer, but on consignment. And when you actually finish your fundraise, they'll send you the bill. And Gunners and Denver was the firm that we used. They're also the same firm for Balderton. And they suggested we should just be a, either Delaware or Cayman fund, the international version of, of Delaware. So we were a Cayman fund. And it wasn't until our second fund where the British Business Bank ended up becoming investors that absolutely not to Cayman that we ended up becoming a UK fund. Thank you so much for your time. Really appreciated. Please do remember to subscribe to the podcast in whatever podcasting app you use. You can also find us on Twitter at associated underscore pod and email us at associatedpodcast at gmail.com.